If you could spend an afternoon with your pastor and chat about life, what questions would you ask? Right now on Focal Point, our teacher Mike Fabares has cleared his schedule to answer questions submitted by you, our listening family. Welcome to Focal Point. I'm your host, Dave Drewey. So glad to have you with us. For the next half hour, we have the pleasure of joining Pastor Mike Fabares and Focal Point's Executive Director, Jay Wharton, as they tackle an intriguing question sent in by a listener, looking for some clarity on the thoughts and strategies of our ancient enemy, Satan. So get comfortable, and let's sit down together for this fascinating edition of Ask Pastor Mike. Jay, why don't you get things started? Well, thanks, Dave. I'm here with Pastor Mike, and Pastor Mike, a listener wrote to us and asked, how does Satan attack us? And while that's a really good question, I wanted to back up and maybe you could talk about the existence of Satan, or is he just some invention that religion has made up to scare us? How would you respond to that? Yeah, I might think that, were it not for the fact that the Bible speaks so prominently of angelic beings, of which Satan is a part of that category or class of beings, and it speaks of them from beginning to end, from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. They're a prominent part in terms of the role that they play and the descriptions and the discussions about them, angelic beings, both angels and demons. Demons are, of course, angels as well, but the good angels and the bad angels. The Bible calls them elect angels and evil angels. So we've got both categories there, all so prominent in the Scripture. Now, if it were some other book that we're talking about, and I might think it's a human invention to scare people into doing what's right or whatever you said, but the Bible says these things, and the Bible is proven on every other area as truth because of its predictive prophecies, it's batting 100% on things that were predicted about Christ and His coming and about every other thing that relates to the nations and the exile. And so I've got a book I've got to trust because the resurrected Christ trusted it, because the prophetic word in it has come true, uh, because the Old Testament spoke of the New Testament realities in such clarity with 100% accuracy. So if it says there is this class of beings called angels, and there's good angels and bad angels, elect angels and evil angels, then I'm going to believe it because the Bible clearly teaches it. So what I've got to recognize is that the God of the Bible has talked about this class of beings who have an impact on certain things in world history, all the way down to evil angels having an impact on the temptations I face throughout the day. This is a reality, and I need to know something about them. And as the listener writes, you know, how do they attack us? Well, there's lots of ways that they do, primarily through temptation. I mean, that's how it starts. We're introduced to the first fallen angel in Genesis chapter 3, because he's tempting people to not believe what God has said. So, you know, that's the, the primary mode of Satan's work, you know, with my life in terms of compromise, or even in my thought life in terms of what I dwell on and, and entertain in my own thoughts, that's the work of the demonic. That's how Satan attacks. Now, Satan is the chief of the fallen angels, so he probably didn't have much time for me. He's not omniscient, and he's not omnipresent, so he's dealing with probably bigger things on geopolitical issues and maybe occasionally with one of God's superstars. But for the average Christian, we're dealing with the, the minions, as we sometimes say, of Satan. 
we're not dealing directly with Satan, but sometimes the Bible will put it in those terms just to remind us that they're all in league with each other in trying to accomplish Satan's agenda in this world. But we're dealing with demons every day, and demons are dealing with the issues of temptation and compromise and frustration, a lot of other things. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy, and all of those issues can somehow be impacted through the things that I'm enticed to do through their activity. Pastor Mike, in the Bible we see demon-possessed people or demoniacs that are throwing themselves into the fires and hurting themselves, almost like they're being made to do those things. Can they make us do things, as a famous comedian would say, the devil made me do it? Right. How much control power do they have? Yeah, I don't want to oversimplify this, but if my son came home from junior high school and got in trouble for doing something and he blamed it on the guys he was hanging out with there is some truth to that i'm sure that peer pressure i'm sure that you know he was in league with these bad kids and he fell in with this bad group of people i get all that even the word fell in these were decisions that he made and so there's always a culpability or an accountability there's always some guilt to be shared but i can see that someone gets so involved and so in league with demonic beings that there is a sense in which they get to a place where they are doing things. So yeah, that happens, that's the extreme case, and certainly it happens, and that's what the Bible describes. But like I said, I'm still gonna get my kid in trouble for doing the wrong thing, even if he's blaming it on you know, his friends who pressured him into doing it. So you don't get to that place without a lot of personal cooperation along the way. I guess another question right along that lines, I mean, can demons hear our thoughts and how do they work in our brains in that way? I I get that question a lot and people don't like my answer, but you know, if we really think about what the Bible tells us in terms of the, the demonic beings being tempters, so much of the temptation that goes on that we see described in the Bible takes place in the area of our thoughts. And to say, well, they don't understand our thoughts or they can't perceive our thoughts, we assume they can only perceive something else. And when you say something else, you know, most people think, well, our words. But our words, think about that, are they're physical realities. We, we speak words, we move airwaves, those sound waves go into people's ears and vibrate bones and send pulses to their brain and they decode what they've heard. Demons aren't physical, right? I often say, people say, well, you have to say something for a demon to perceive it. You know, they can't read your thoughts. They can't perceive your thoughts. They can only perceive your words. They can only hear your words. I always say, well, how loud do I have to speak? You know, I I just think none of it really follows. In other words, it's not logical to me to say that a demon has to have you do something or say something to perceive what you're doing or what you're thinking. My point is they function in the realm of spiritual realities, and the spiritual realities that we deal with are the things that we contemplate, the things that we think, the things that we entertain in our imaginations, and all of these things, I think, are certainly the realm in which they work. And so, you know, people always want me to point to a chapter and verse to prove that, but I'm just saying for you to quote that only God is omniscient, therefore demons can't read your thoughts is not an answer to me because... It would be like living in a world of blind people, right? And there's only one guy that can see. And because you're all blind, you sit around and say, well, that guy must be omniscient because he perceives things that I don't through a means that I don't have access to, right? Do you follow that? So I'm saying, well, just because I can see, I have an avenue of perception that you don't have. That does not make me omniscient, right? I've still got to place my eyeballs on something to see it. You'd have to go over and feel it. Just like I have to hear you say something to know what you're thinking, 
as you express it, but I don't think demons do because they function in the realm of spiritual things, which are things that don't deal with perception. So my point is uh, they're not omniscient simply because they can perceive our thoughts. Uh, they still have to focus on a particular person to perceive their thoughts. They don't hear or perceive all thoughts at all times any more than someone who can see can see all things at all times. And again, that may be too complicated, but I think too many people have heard you know, their favorite Bible teacher or something say, well, they're not omniscient, so they can't read your thoughts. I just don't think that follows. Just because you have an avenue of perception that someone else does not have does not automatically make you omniscient that you know all things. It just means you have an avenue of perception that we don't have. They don't have the avenues of perception of sight and hearing because they're not physical beings. We're so used to sight and hearing. Those are the ways we perceive or feeling. They don't have those. They don't rely on those. They certainly have avenues of perception that we don't have because they're of a different constitution than us. Well, thank you, Pastor Mike. I appreciate that. And we're going to listen now to a portion of a study series you did on angels and demons. And this one is called The Position, Power, and Activity of Satan. The word Satan means what? Adversary. The most common name for our spiritual enemy is adversary. It means opponent, one who's our antagonist, one who is our enemy. We speak of him that way because he is our enemy, because we are kids of his ultimate enemy. And uh, that, just by the nature of his name, ought to put us back a little bit on our heels, thinking, okay, we've got a very strong, formidable foe who is out to do something that is all tied up in his name, oppose us, be our adversary, antagonize us to be our enemy. And uh, now what we need to do is to figure out how he might do that. Second Corinthians 2.11 says, we would not be outwitted by Satan. And he's addressing a particular problem in Corinth of unforgiveness. But he says here, our unforgiveness that we sometimes harbor toward each other. He says, for we are not ignorant of his designs is how the ESV puts it. Some translations translate this word schemes. Another good word might be strategies. It's based on the word to think. It really has to do with how he thinks, his thoughts, his plans. And if Paul can say that, certainly any Christian who, who attempts to mature in the Christian life ought to sit down and think through his strategies, his plans. We know he's our opponent, but now we need to think about what are his strategies? What are the ways that he wants to attack us, to oppose us. And we would be foolish to be ignorant of them. We need to be aware of these. Let's look at the very first strategy Satan ever employed on human beings, Genesis 3. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the man, Did God actually... Correct me if I read any of this wrong. To the woman... Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate it and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, a couple things I need to establish here. If you read the creation narrative, which you all have, you'll understand that God creates the man and bringing that woman into the man's life as what's called and is so insulting to modern women, a helpmate. Someone who comes alongside and together they're made complete, but she is there as a helpmate to the man. 
She's his partner of equal value and worth, but there's an order and a structure to everything God creates. And Satan knows exactly what to do. If he is going to mess up this thing, he goes right after the order, which the New Testament refers to elsewhere, that this is clearly a usurping of the place of Adam's leadership in his marriage. It is something that happens and continues to happen and is promised to happen even in the curse that follows, that there will be an inbuilt temptation and a propensity for in the home the dad's or the husband's leadership to be usurped. You need to watch out for this. You want to talk about Satan working as the prince of the power of the air? You want to talk about him influencing the culture? For me to even say what I've just said is scandalous, even to Christians, because they've been so indoctrinated by our satanic culture. They just can't even handle the fact that there is male leadership in the home. And that is usurped every day in the home and in Christian homes because we are so influenced, or as Romans 12 puts it, conformed to the world. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. You're not going to find anything in the Bible except the paradigm of a kind of order, a structural administrative order in the church and in the home that is gender-specific. And that is attacked on a daily basis. The strategy of the enemy is to turn a marriage and a home upside down by usurping dad's leadership. And dad is all the more happy to do it, unfortunately. Men are supposed to lead. Unfortunately, Satan's agenda for the home is that that does not happen. 1 Corinthians 7. Satan's got another strategy for your home. Not only to emasculate dad, make sure that mom runs the show. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5. The husband should give his wife conjugal. You don't hear that, but on like prison documentaries. But the ESV went for it. Her conjugal rights. I mean, let's just read it. The husband should have sex with his wife. And likewise, the wife should have sex with her husband. Okay? For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by an agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer. That's your only out, is that you're having a little prayer fast. Okay? Then come together again so that, here's our enemy, Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Satan's agenda for your home is to make sure that your marriage is littered with, punctuated by, or at least get one good adulterous affair in while you're married. That's his strategy. That's desperately what he wants. Because, of course, the marriage is supposed to be this picture of the fidelity between Christ and his church. He wants that, as he said over there in 2 Corinthians 11, that pure devotion to Christ so that we wouldn't be tempted, enticed by the evil one away from that. That should be a picture of our marriages. So his job is to prompt adultery whenever he can. And adultery, by the way, if you remember the Sermon on the Mount, you know, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you've committed adultery with her in her heart. The point is this, that the command of adultery is not some pillar, some post that as long as you don't touch that, you're doing okay. It is a law that directs us in the right direction. And the direction is fidelity. The direction is loyalty. Anything that doesn't move us in that direction is a move away from it, and it's sinful. And that's the point. Whatever is going to move us in the direction of infidelity, 
is sin. That's what Jesus is trying to say. Satan's job is to get into your home, undermine dad's leadership, to try and make sure that there's infidelity in the marriage. That's be great. That's what he wants. 1 Samuel 15. Go back to this one. 1 Samuel 15. Saul and Samuel and the Amalekites. Agag. If I had a dog, that's, I'd call him Agag. It's a good name. Agag, the king of the Amalekites. God often used Israel, just like sometimes he used Assyria, sometimes he used Babylon, sometimes he used Egypt. He used nations as his arm of retribution. If a nation was so out of control, he'd use another nation, and in warfare they would wipe those people out. And sometimes they were such sinners and so deplorable in God's sight, God wanted them all destroyed, no prisoners, don't take any of their stuff, devote it all over to destruction. That's what was called for here. And in verse 18, Samuel, the prophet, is speaking to Saul, the king, and he says, the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Kill them. Wipe them out. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? You took their stuff. You took prisoners. You weren't supposed to. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord has sent me. And I brought Agag, the king of the Amalekites, back. I know, but, you know, come on. But I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, they took the spoil. Yeah, you're right, they did. They took a few camels in the driveway and all that. I understand that. Some sheep, some oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction. But they did that to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Interesting, he's the Lord your God now. But yeah, we're going we're gonna, to, all the good stuff we got here, the, the Mercedes that we drove up in, the gold rings we found, the Rolexes, all, we're, just gonna get, we're all going to sacrifice them to the Lord anyway, don't worry. Verse 22, famous lines, you know these words. Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Right? Think about that. A lot of things we might justify thinking, well, God, there's some advantage to you or your kingdom or your church or your people. No, no, no. Obey God, even, if, even to your sacrifice. Right? Obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of, what's the word? Divination, witchcraft, connection with demons or Satan. Right? And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you from being king. Okay, this is into Satan's territory here. And what does he call it? Rebellion. Okay? Taking the rules and disobeying them. Inciting rebellion in your home. I don't think it's cute, and you shouldn't either, when a mom tells a toddler to do something and the toddler acts defiantly and shines on a mom, even if it's no damage or hurt to anything or anyone. It is dabbling in Satan's territory. According to a text like this, not doing what was told by the authority. In this case, Samuel told, he was the authority, told Saul what to do. Saul did not do it. He had a reason for not doing it. He rationalized his disobedience. And here Samuel says, it's like you're dealing with demons now. You're in the category of divination, witchcraft. Really? Rebellion is like divination. And you need to see this in your home. He wants nothing more than for you to be so tired or worn out that you see your kid defy you, 
That's what he wants. He wants your kids to be rebellious. He wants to incite disobedience and rebellion. Moms and dads, you are the authority in your home. Your kids are called by God to obey your voice, to obey your directives. When they don't, Satan stands back and applauds. It is his strategy to make sure that they disobey. Now, probably one of the most classic texts in all the New Testament on spiritual warfare. Let's go to Ephesians 6 and spend just a few closing minutes in this text. Ephesians chapter 6. Chapter 6 of Ephesians, there is a battle going on that he calls us to engage in by getting ready with what he calls here, metaphorically, our armor. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6, 11. That you may be able to stand against, the whole point of this, is the schemes of the devil. There it is again. The way he plans and thinks and the way he devises some kind of thing against us. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That's not the real problem. It's not your hormones. It's not your, you know, your life. It's not just your manager, the people, the neighbors. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present, this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth. Do you know it? Are you clinging to it? Does it gird up your life? Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, are you striving, as the Bible calls us to, toiling in all the power that works within us to do what is right, to be righteous? And having shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The gospel, this picture of these shoes that allow us to stand firm. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Trust God. A lot of the things we've even listed here are about do I trust Him in the practical areas of my life with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. It's going to attack us. Take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit, according to what He wants, the things that He's revealed in the book that He wrote with all prayer and supplication. At that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. He calls us to the gospel. He calls us to righteousness. He calls us to prayer. He calls us to the scripture, to the truth. These are the things that keep us prepared to fight. These are spiritual battles that we've got to step up and fight in the strength that God supplies. You're listening to Pastor Mike Fabares in a message titled, The Position, Power, and Activity of Satan, here on Focal Point. It's part of our weekly feature called, Ask Pastor Mike. And today we've been answering the question, is Satan real? Now, if you missed any part of the conversation, listen again at focalpointradio.org. Pastor Mike's teaching is completely free to access, thanks to support from listeners like you, coming together and doing what they can. We're so grateful. Every gift truly makes an eternal impact in the lives of those who listen, helping them explore the depths of Scripture. If you're ready to be part of that mission, here's the number to call, 888-320-5885, or give online at focalpointradio.org. And when you give today to express our thanks, we'd like to send you a copy of a book we've been highlighting this month called How to Finish the Christian Life, Following Jesus in the Second Half. Authors George and Donald Sweeting, a father-son team, explore our purpose in the golden years and offer practical advice on serving God as we approach the finish line of life. 
They talk about everything from retirement to funeral preparations. And while these subjects may be uncomfortable for some, it's important that we think ahead and have a biblical perspective. We'd love to send you a copy of this practical guide. Again, it's titled, How to Finish the Christian Life, and it comes with our thanks for your support of this ministry. And when your gift is $75 or more, in addition to the book, we'll also include a USB drive containing Pastor Mike's complete study of 1 Corinthians, including popular series like People Who Make a Difference, Holiness, and our current series, Life's Last Enemy. To make your gift of support and request both of these valuable resources, here's the number to call, 888-320-5885, or donate online at focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy, so glad to have you with us. And be sure to come back again next time as we continue exploring the depths of Scripture right here on Focal Point. Hey, it's Pastor Mike, and I want to let you know about a brand new Bible college right here in Southern California called Compass Bible Institute. I'd love to see you be a part of this theological education by the church and for the church. Check out our website, compassbibleinstitute.org. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.